This week, Bristow Group files for Chapter 11. PG&E transmission lines determined to cause campfire. Windstream says outright rejection of Unity lease on the table. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm Karen Lung. Later this episode, Mark Fisher sits down with Covenant analyst Peter Washkowitz to examine certain Covenant trends in the primary market for new issues. They will discuss and explain recent potential pitfalls and provisions from recent deals. It's Sunday, May 19th. Bristow Group filed for Chapter 11 Saturday morning in the Southern District of Texas with an RSA supported by an ad hoc group of holders of the company's eight and three quarters senior secured notes. The ad hoc group holds 89% of the secured notes. The RSA contemplates repayment in full in cash, reinstatement, or an equity conversion option for the pre-petition term loan, and that secured note holders would receive 100% of reorganized equity, less any equity distributed to unsecured notes claims. Equity recoveries on account of pre-petition claims would be subject to dilution from an MIP and a contemplated $200 million rights offering supported by the ad hoc secured group. The pre-petition term loan, $75 million in total, was funded one day before the company filed for Chapter 11. The unsecured note holders have also committed to providing a $75 million dip. An ad hoc group of holders of Bristow's unsecured 6th and one quarter senior notes and 4.5% convertible notes has repeatedly challenged the RSA, first in a statement filed Monday and again at the first day hearing on Tuesday. According to the group's counsel at the first day hearing, the unsecured see, quote, significant substantial value in the business, quote, well in excess of the secured notes. Counsel for the group reiterated at the first day hearing that the group remains willing to invest in a fully backstopped and committed rights offering that would take out the secured notes. According to the debtor's first day declaration, on May 7th, Bristow received a new bid from the ad hoc group of unsecured note holders, including term sheets for a plan, rights offering, and dip financing. And on May 10th, as the closing of the 2019 term loan was occurring, the debtors received a revised proposal from the ad hoc group of unsecured note holders that included a rights offering and other terms sufficient to repay in full the secured notes at emergence from Chapter 11. Ultimately, according to the declaration, the debtors chose the secured note holders group's proposal because, among other things, quote, Entering into the 2019 term loan and RSA with the secured note holders allowed the debtors to go into Chapter 11 with an agreement for the use of cash collateral and avoid the prospect of a first-day valuation dispute. The California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection determined last week that PG&E equipment was responsible for causing the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in state history, the campfire of November 2018. New PG&E CEO Bill Johnson said that he'd taken the job with the, quote, assumption that PG&E had caused the fire, noting that the company had stated in public filings that such a finding was probable at a legislative hearing in Sacramento. Let's not do it again, he said. Quote, we weren't well prepared last year. That was obvious, but we're much better prepared this year. I will tell you we will be laser focused on safety, but I won't expect you to believe that until you see the results. In the investor-owned utilities Chapter 11 cases, the UCC opposed PG&E's proposed wildfire assistance program, calling it, quote, laudable, but also, quote, flawed. 
The UCC also proposed limiting the debtor's exclusivity period to four months rather than the six sought by the debtors. Meanwhile, the Tort Claimants Committee, or TCC, stated in a filing that it not only supports the Wildfire Assistance Program, but believes it should be funded with at least $250 million, subject to replenishment, rather than the $105 million sought by the debtors. And the TCC said that, regarding plan exclusivity, quote, since the debtors refuse to consider any plan that does not include a bailout from the state of California and higher rates for the utility ratepayers instead of a reduction in market cap. They have forfeited the exclusive right to file a plan. Also in PG&E, the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission released a preliminary report contemplating the municipalization of local PG&E transmission and other assets by the city. Quote, the preliminary findings support acquisition of PG&E electric assets serving San Francisco due to likely outcomes, such as durable and long-term cost savings, timely and cost-efficient modernization of the electrical grid, and meeting the city's priorities on affordability, clean energy, safety, reliability, workforce development, and equity, the report said. The San Francisco Public Utilities Commission's rough estimate of the, quote, likely fair market value of the assets was, quote, a few billion dollars. Windstream said that it is contemplating, quote, all options regarding its lease with Unity, including, quote, renegotiation, recharacterization, unwinding the lease, as well as an outright rejection of the lease. According to Windstream's calculations, it estimates that payment could be reduced by 80% or more if the lease were to be renewed in 2030. 54% of the value of the initial lease relates to copper facilities, which Windstream says are in significant decline. As for earnings, the company reported a 3.2% drop in OIBDAR and a 5.2% decline in OIBDA, which is the company's version of EBITDA, and includes payments to Unity for rent. Cengage and McGraw-Hill canceled the proposed amendment to extend and consolidate each company's term loan after failing last week to reach the 90% consent threshold, sources told Reorg. The proposed amend and extend was a condition of the merger closing. Terms of the amendment included a 25 basis point consent fee to be paid if the amendment became effective, and a coupon boost to each loan including 100 basis points to McGraw-Hill lenders and 75 to Cengage lenders. A spokesperson for the two companies told Reorg that the companies intend to move forward with their proposed merger. In a statement to Reorg, the spokesperson said, quote, The companies are excited about the opportunity of the merger, and it remains on track. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, in a Monday press conference, Governor Ricardo Rosseo said his administration will file a revised budget with the PROMESA Oversight Board by the May 17th deadline, but warned that despite board opposition, his administration's final budget would continue to include public policy priorities, such as fully funding government worker pensions and annual Christmas bonus payments to public employees. The governor said a budget violation notice from the Oversight Board was no surprise, given the stark differences between his administration and the board on such key public policies. On Tuesday, during an investment forum in San Juan called Puerto Rico, a paradise of opportunities, Commonwealth officials announced plans to establish a $400 million revolving credit line that offers investors in Island Opportunity Zones low-cost financing for up to 20% of a project's costs, which they said would boost a project's potential return on investment. 
Governor Rosseo, who kicked off the event, touted the Commonwealth as, quote, the most exciting place to invest right now. Puerto Rico Chief Investment Officer Gerardo Portela said the Commonwealth will create the revolver by using a portion of the roughly $20 billion the island is receiving through the U.S. Housing and Urban Development Community Development Block Grant Disaster Relief Program. He said an approved action plan for an $8.2 billion tranche of the HUD grants identifies an $800 million bucket for economic development, noting that half of the money would go toward funding the $400 million revolver. Portela said the revolving credit line could finance up to $2 billion worth of Opportunity Zone projects. Also in Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority disclosed in an EMMA filing late Wednesday that the Puerto Rico Sales Tax Financing Corporation received a determination from the U.S. Internal Revenue Service that will permit COFINA to offer tax-exempt exchange bonds for tranches of bonds issued as part of the COFINA plan of adjustment that took effect in February. Kofina said it expects to launch an exchange offer on or prior to May 31st, under which holders of 2019 A2B2 bonds will have the opportunity to exchange those bonds for an equal principal amount of exchange bonds, which would bear interest at applicable interest rates. Holders of 2019 A2B2 bonds will have 20 business days from the launch date of the exchange to accept Kofina's offer. It is expected that the exchange bonds would be issued and the exchange transaction consummated on or around July 1st. Separately this week, Judge Laura Taylor Swain in the Title III cases approved a joint prosecution stipulation with respect to HCA and ERS claims. Other top stories this week were Breaking. Weatherford announces RSA with 62% of unsecured notes to implement restructuring through Chapter 11. Irish examinership proceedings and recapitalize with up to $2.5 billion in total funded debt, Cloud Peak first day hearing scheduled for May 14th, and Ecobat Holdings 2 $1.8 billion euro pick to be converted into equity in prepack Chapter 11 under deal with Howard Myers. And here's Jim Holloway with The Week Ahead. Well, thank you, Karen. Welcome back, and hello to one and all y'all. James Holloway with the week ahead. And starting on Monday, May 20th, with a company located in Lexington, Kentucky. Beautiful little city right there in the heart of the bluegrass. Make sure you check out Red State Barbecue on Ironworks Pike. It's worth the trip. Anyways, Blackhawk Mining, which is headquartered there in Lexington, the forbearance expires today. And as we've reported, the company and the lenders are aiming to pursue an out-of-court, but we'll take it before the judge if needed. Also on Monday, Exco Resources grinding right along. The debtors will seek approval of their exit financing. Tailwind Energy consents due for indenture amendments related to its cash tender for up in a five and a quarter million of three series of notes. And First Energy, they're back seeking approval of their fourth amended disclosure plan, along with responses and objections from parties including personal injury claimants and the Sierra Club. So good luck, boys. Tuesday, May 21st, first quarter earnings from J.C. Penney, whose adjusted EBITDA declined 32.5% in the fourth quarter. Uh, and you know, I don't think there's an Ann, there's actually an Ann Taylor or a J. Crew lurking out there somewhere, but there is, or rather was, a real, actual, genuine 
J.C. Penney. His name was James Cash Penney from Hamilton, Missouri, and he opened his first store in Wyoming in 1902. Sam Walton worked at a J.C. Penney store in Iowa at one point. Also on Tuesday, Sable Permian, early tender expiration for the company's exchange offer. And also, it's coming to the end of a 30-day grace period related to the non-payment of coupon on its senior notes. Wednesday, May 27th, we have a hearing in Hexion. It's awesome alliteration. Anyway, PG&E, an omnibus hearing. And uh, Karen, I just wanted to thank you for your early summary of some of the complexities of that matter. Uh, with San Francisco City Council, as I understand it, recommending the, quote, municipalization of PG&E assets, unquote, because they, the city, can run it more efficiently. Bless their hearts. I enjoyed that. I really did. And so there is that. There's that hearing, and there's another hearing. And this one's on Goldman's. Sachs's motion to dismiss a lawsuit filed against it by United Natural Foods. Cloud Peak Energy, another thermal coal name formation hearing for the UCC. On Thursday, May 23rd, there's, there's earnings-related matters for Cedro and L Brands. Early participation deadline comes to an end on Ultra Petroleum's exchange officer. And Bellatrix Exploration, unsecured note holders and shareholders, are meeting in Calgary, Alberta to vote on Bellatrix's corporate plan of arrangement. On Friday, well, there's nothing on Friday. It'd be in a holiday-type weekend, and I will be off myself to Nakatosh, beautiful old town in central Louisiana with a lot of the old-type French colonial architecture and home of the Nakatosh meat pie, one of the state foods of the great state of Louisiana. Let the good times roll and be safe, whatever you're doing. And back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. Now here are Mark and Peter to discuss trends and covenants that they're seeing in the primary market. So I'm here with Peter Washkowitz, Senior Covenant Analyst, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, some primary trends that we've been seeing um, here at Reora Covenants. We've been doing a lot more on the uh, the primary side, and uh, Peter puts together a weekly article looking at different trends that he sees in the in the covenants and the provisions, uh, quantifies them so we could really see how they'll affect um, companies and risk profiles going forward. So, Peter, thanks for, for joining us. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm uh, glad to be here. Um, so let's start uh, talking about a familiar topic uh, with everybody, but a little bit of a different twist, and that's on restricted uh, payments. Of course, everybody knows um, the pitfalls of restricted payments um, from the J. Crew, from PetSmart, uh, from Claire's, is topics that we've talked about. But Peter's got a little bit of a, a different risk um, associated with restricted payments that he's been seeing. So why don't you explain, Peter? Uh, yeah, um, so this trend um, I've actually seen in recent uh um, new high-yield issuances, as well as uh, some new bank debt facilities. Um, and what the provision is, is it allows companies to incur additional debt uh, using uh, their restricted payment capacity. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've seen a lot of articles that kind of say this is a risk to lenders and to note holders uh, because it provides the company with, you know, additional debt capacity. But I think it goes a little further than that. Um, if you kind of think about um, a company's ability to make restricted payments, you know, let's say their company is permitted to pay um, $500 million of dividends. Uh, now, it actually needs the funds to pay the dividends. Um, so regardless of whether it's permitted to do something to pay the dividend, it needs to fund it somehow. So, um, you know, take the example where the company is allowed to pay $500 million of dividends but it only has $100 million of cash. Uh, so it can only pay $100 million of the $500 million. 
However, if you allow it to incur additional debt based on restricted payment capacity, it can reduce the amount of permitted dividend it's allowed, while at the same time increasing its funding sources to pay uh, those dividends. So you see there's a kind of a, there's a balance here. Uh, sure, the company will reduce its ability to pay dividends, but on the other hand, it increases its literal ability to pay those dividends. So, you know, it incurs additional debt, and it uses that to fund those dividends. Interesting. And what? Uh, give us examples of some of the deals where you've seen this in. Sure. Well, I, the credit agreements are uh, for private issuers, so I, I can't obviously I talk about those names. But uh, in the high yield market, uh, we've seen uh, recent new issuances by companies. Uh, one was Truck Hero, uh, which issued three hundred thirty-five million dollars of first lien notes, and another one was Assured Partners um, that sold four hundred seventy-five million of senior unsecured notes. Um, both of them had kind of similar concepts of, you know, taking from the restricted payment capacity to incur debt. Uh, Truck Heroes went actually a step further and allowed that additional debt to, uh, to be secured. So here you have a uh, situation where the company had issued those first lien notes. Not only are you giving it a, additional capacity to fund restricted payments, you are actually giving it additional capacity to kind of uh, incur additional parry debt uh, thereby reducing those initial bondholders' kind of claim on the collateral, as it will now be shared with you know, a greater a greater group of uh, note holders. Interesting. And and can you give us any specific language that we should look out for uh, that would um, you know warn us that uh, the company will have the ability uh, to use that restricted payment capacity for debt? Yeah, you know it, it's funny because you would think that. Um, you know, because a lot of people read these provisions to be aggressive, they would, uh, you know, drafters would kind of just throw them in as an additional basket. But in, in the deals that I've seen, both the bank debt and the, the bonds, they actually define this term. Uh, one, you know, they'll call it something like the available RP capacity amount or the shared RP basket. Uh, whatever it is, it, 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 it really stands out, especially when you see it in a debt covenant. You know, you're reading... You know, permitted additional parry debt, purchase money debt, and all of a sudden you come to a basket that has RP capacity in it, um, which really stands out. So, you know, if you are reviewing an indenture or a new credit agreement, um, I, I would generally say, you know, kind of look out for for any reference to restricted payments or RPs. Uh, within the debt covenant itself. Interesting. Thank you, Peter. And, and let's move on to another uh, form of additional debt capacity that, that might be you know hidden in front of our eyes. Um, and this is on um, leverage-based baskets, right? So could, could you explain that? Uh, yeah. So um, this actually, the, uh, it, it, this, this is a kind of a, an issue that, co- that comes up in the bonds and in credit agreements in different ways. Uh, so I'll start with the, the, the high-yield bonds first. Um, you know, in a typical high-yield bond, you'll have a credit facility basket, which is the main source of the issuer's ability to incur additional secured debt. Uh, typically, it kind of provides an amount that uh, closely correlates to the amount of bank debt it has and then gives, uh, you know, some cushion. So what we've been seeing recently, and this isn't new, but I think where these leverage uh, tests are set uh, may be kind of getting a little too close for comfort. Um, what you'll see is you'll see a credit facilities basket that allows debt not to exceed, let's say, a billion dollars, and then it has plus additional amounts in compliance with a specified secured leverage test. Um, now, in, in Refinitiv and Envision deals, which are kind of regarded as two of the more aggressive deals in the past few years, 
those credit facility baskets uh, had specific language that um, only allowed the issuers to access those leverage-based baskets once it had fully incurred uh, the debt under the fixed amount basket. So I guess the rationale was once they incur that amount in the fixed basket uh, and the fixed basket component of the credit facilities basket, you know, their secured leverage would obviously rise probably to the point where at issuance they wouldn't be able to access the leverage-based basket. However, in, in some of these new deals, uh, there is not that language that requires the issuers to uh, fully utilize the fixed basket first. Um, and we have seen, uh, you know, a smaller subset of these of these deals where the issuers were actually able to meet the secured leverage test at issuance. So what, what this essentially allows you to do is it allows you to reclassify all outstanding bank debt uh, on the issuance date as having been incurred under those leverage-based baskets, and therefore it, it completely uh, it completely refills that fixed basket amount, which um, the issuer can can incur once it's fully maxed out the uh, leverage-based uh, basket. So again, this isn't something new, but we have been seeing more and more deals where these issuers are able to meet the leverage-based test uh, at issuance. So um, that is in that's in the bonds now. In the credit agreements, uh, a, an interesting issue is coming up in the incremental debt provisions. Uh, the way the incremental debt baskets are set up are, are very similar to credit facilities baskets, where it allows uh, incremental debt not to exceed uh, you know 500 million plus additional amounts in compliance with the first lien test. Um, now, what's important here is, um, you know, investors in the primary market are very concerned with MFN protection. Uh, what that does is it ensures that they get the benefit of any better pricing um, if the borrower incurs additional parity incremental debt. Um, one, a new mechanism that, that I've seen um, multiple times is that the MFN provision will only apply to incremental debt that was originally incurred as leverage-based debt. So you have that basket. Um, the credit agreements will also allow the issuer to reclassify incremental debt incurred under the fixed basket as having been incurred under the leverage-based basket if it can later meet that test. Um, now, what that does is, let's say you have a company who can meet the leverage test uh, once it enters into the credit agreement. If it wants to avoid uh, providing uh, lenders with any MFN protection, it can incur the debt under the fixed basket amount. And then because of those reclassification provisions, it can automatically reclassify that incremental debt as having been incurred under the leverage-based basket. But remember that the MFN protection only applies to incremental debt that was originally, and that's, that's important, that was originally incurred as leverage-based debt. So what this, what this new thing does is it allows companies to completely circumvent the MFN protection by incurring incremental debt is in, under the fixed basket, quickly reclassifying it un, as leverage-based, so you refill your fixed basket amount, similar to what happens under the credit facilities basket, but because that incremental debt was not originally incurred as leverage-based debt, even though it was reclassified, let's say, the next day, the borrowers can avoid having to provide uh, lenders with MFN protection. So, again, it's another, it's another one of these uh, issues where on the face it's not, you know, there's nothing on the face that makes it aggressive, but what you need to do is you need to look at the leverage-based test and you need to see if the companies can meet it at issuance or upon entering into credit agreements. 
if they can, you need to kind of figure out how that runs through the documents and how these companies can exploit their ability to meet those tests to uh, to, to uh, have the ability to incur additional secure debt down the road. Um, so let, let, let's move on to um, you know another thing. It's not really a covenant provision, but just something that we've seen um, recently released in a couple of um, deals, uh, LIBOR floors. Uh, you know, for for a long time, LIBOR floors have been 1%, and, and this is, you know, the spread uh, over, uh, or, or the base, um, the, the, the minimum rate, um, and then there's a spread on top of it uh, for what companies pay um, uh, coupons on these loans. So there starts with the with a, with a floor if they don't want LIBOR uh, to go over a certain, uh, to go under a certain amount, and that floor has been 1% for um, for quite a number of years uh, since the financial crisis, uh, basically when uh, when rates approach zero. And um, you know, for a, a couple times, we actually saw it go down a little bit, back to back to zero or no floor. But uh, this is interesting, where it was a couple of deals where a LIBOR floor was at least two and a half percent. You know, why don't, why don't you tell us which which of those deals um, they were and, um, and and provide a little context here and why that's important? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I know LIBOR floors are probably not the um, the most interesting issue, but I mean, this actually really stuck out. Um, so in the last, like, let's say, two years, as LIBOR has, um, you know, um, consistently stayed above that 1% level, um, you know, you only see kind of LIBOR floors at 0%, because um, essentially there's really no need for it if LIBOR is sustaining itself above 1%. But um, in the last week, uh, we saw um, Bristow, Bristow, which um, just filed for bankruptcy on Monday, Right before they did that, they entered into a, uh, I believe it was a $75 million term loan, which had a 2.5% LIBOR floor. And, you know, seeing that, it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was actually, it, it, it stuck out um, because you're just, you're really not used to seeing, um, not only, you're not used to seeing LIBOR floors anymore, but you're certainly, I've never been used to seeing LIBOR floors anywhere above 1%. So the 25 really stuck out. Um, funny enough, on top of that, and on the same day, it was Monday, Acosta um, had announced that it had entered into a, a receivables financing. Uh, the interesting thing there is they had a LIBOR floor that I believe was 2.77%. Um, so, again, you know, I hadn't seen anything. Uh, I hadn't seen many LIBOR floors and certainly nothing above 1%. And all of a sudden, that one day, uh, you know, we saw two. Uh, of course, those are unique situations. I mean, one company filed for bankruptcy, uh, you know, minutes or hours after it entered into the facility. And Acosta has been having some, uh, you know, its financials have been deteriorating over the last few years. So, you know, sure, these aren't kind of the best quality credits. Um, but even so, we, you know, at Rear, we look at, you know, many, many distressed companies uh, and I've never seen LIBOR floors over 1%. So um, it was an interesting issue. Um, and we put something out very quickly on it. Um, just to alert our subscribers. Yeah, no, that that's right, and 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 like you say, it's worth pointing out. In Bristow, the company had filed for bankruptcy a day after uh, entering into this uh, this seventy five million dollar loan. So you know, certainly the company was under some pressure. We don't know what each side's negotiating power was, and I'm sure that there were plenty of gives gives and takes uh, throughout the negotiating process. But uh, you know, to put to further put this in context, as I'm looking. Uh, at recent rates, three-month LIBOR is right at around um, two and a half percent, and there are many people out there that that 
you know, could see a or think that maybe the net Fed's next move is is down. I mean, you know, we're not taking positions here at, at Reorg, but certainly that's um, you know, it's more than a coincidence that that floor was at two and a half percent, and people, you know, you, you, essentially the lenders are trying to lock in a, a rate if rates do uh, do fall here. So very interesting to see. We'll we'll see if it leads to uh, to further um, to further ones out there. Uh, Peter, Peter, thank you very much. Um, really appreciate this, and we'll we'll continue to look out for uh, for what you've warned us on, and look forward to uh, to the next time when you can warn us on some more. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Connor, back to you. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all of our podcasts on our site's media page, on iTunes, or SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelting.